Hey, good morning, Graceland and guests. My name is Nate. You're like, who is that strange guy? That does not look like Larry. My name is Nate Milliken. And uh, just a little bit about myself. I serve in various ways. I have one wife. It's good. And I have uh, four kids, uh, Lucianne, Lydia, uh, Samuel, and Lorelai. We call her LJ. And uh, I serve the North American Mission Board, which is the, the Baptist entity that helps in the United States uh, with uh, evangelism, uh, church planting missions. And so I oversee church planting for the state of Indiana. I've got a team that I work with. And so my job is, our job is to find individuals, discover individuals that want to lead in a greater capacity, possibly to plant a church, to start new works, to train them up and to deploy them for God's purposes to announce God's kingdom. And so I have the great opportunity to do that. I'm excited. I also serve here as the pastor of church planting partnerships. And so my job is basically to do that. A statistic that I'll, I'll share many times is uh, this, 4% of churches actually reproduce themselves. 4% of evangelical churches, churches that believe that the Bible is the word of God, that there's a real heaven, there's a real hell, that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Uh, 4% of evangelical churches actually reproduce themselves. So if we're gonna reach Southern Indiana, if we're gonna reach Indiana, if we're gonna reach United States, if we're gonna reach the world, we gotta plant more churches. Because, uh, maybe not here, but certainly in my own heart, when I became a Christian 28 years ago, uh, the moment where I trusted in Jesus, it was fresh. Remember that moment when you first trusted Christ? It was awesome. And there's a tendency, not always, some of you are really much more godly than I am, you become comfortable in your faith. Anybody get comfortable in their faith? And, and you begin to not realize the amazing truth that you have a relationship with the God of heaven and earth. And that God has forgiven you in Christ and that we're redeemed and all the promises that we were just saying that are yes in Christ are ours because of our faith in Jesus. And a lot of churches are that way. We get comfortable and we sometimes have more of an inward focus than an outward focus. And so uh, my job throughout the state of Indiana is to help churches and pastors and associations to work alongside of them to help plant churches. And Larry was kind to invite me to to be the pastor of Church Plenty Partnerships, to preach from time to time, and to work alongside of him and under him. And Larry has been a tremendous grace in my life. The Bible says in 1 Peter 5, verse 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and at the appropriate time, God will raise you up. I think that's a, um, evidence in Larry's life. Larry's a man of humility, a man who walks with Jesus, and he and Elizabeth have been a grace in my life as well as my bride's life. We're gonna be in Matthew 28, verse 16 through 20. I'm continuing our series, um, Family Matters, specifically talking about mission matters. Mission matters. Now, just by a show of hands, uh, have you ever heard the Great Commission, this particular passage, preached before? Have you ever heard it preached better than what you're gonna hear it preached this morning? You can't raise your hand yet because you haven't heard it yet. Um, you've probably read it. And the tendency is, and I'm like you, the tendency is when we hear a passage preached that we've heard preached many times before, we're much like the individual that's on a flight for the fifth time or the fiftieth time. And some of you might be flight attendants, right? A flight attendant gets up and what do they do? They give their instructions and they say, this is a seatbelt. And you're like, thanks. I didn't know what that was. That's really helpful. Okay. And it goes together like this and you unclasp it like this and they'll go through several instructions about putting your carry on baggage underneath the seat in front of you or in the overhand compartment. And they'll talk about your tray table needs to be put up and you need to have your seat all the way inclined. And what a lot of us do 
is we don't lock eyes with the flight attendant because he's just kind of frankly awkward. Like we've heard this, we could actually get up and probably do it better than they could. And we, we put our earbuds in our ear, we read a book and we just don't want to look. It's just because it's awkward. And we forget they're giving us life-saving instructions. And what's going to happen is you're going to be on a plane with me and there's going to be a change in altitude and you're not going to know what to do. But I pay attention to the flight. So you want to sit next to me because I'm going to help you out, okay? And when we come to a passage like this, the tendency is for us to kind of check out and think, I know about the Great Commission, but, but the proof is, are we living it? Are we living out the truths of God's word? And we never get to a point, we never get to a point, no matter how seasoned we are, no matter how many degrees we have, no matter how long we've been serving in the church, no matter how much we've given the church, we never get to a point where we can say with a clear conscience, I think I've got this whole Jesus thing down and got it down perfectly. If somebody says that, run from them because they're delusional, okay? All right, so we're gonna be in Matthew 28. If I see a lot of running, that's because you adhere to my advice. Uh, Matthew 28, verse 16 through 20. Let's read God's word together. Here's what God's word says to us. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. I'm so encouraged that the biblical writers don't always paint a Pollyanna picture of the disciples. They struggled. They had doubts. Anybody ever have doubts? I do. Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore in light of the fact that I have all authority and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I love this verse. I am with you always to the end of the age. I think humbly that these verses, Matthew 28, 16 through 20, are to be the priority of the church. This is to be our vision. This is to be our mission. This is to be our marching orders. In fact, you probably know Graceland's vision statement, our mission statement is to transform neighborhoods and generations and the nations through programs, through personalities, through persons, through places. No, we want to transform the neighborhoods, transform the generations, transform the nations through Jesus Christ because only in him can true change happen. That's to be our priority. I read a book several years ago called Essentialism. Essentialism by Greg McCowan. He says this, the word priority came into our English language in the 1400s. It previously meant the, ver the very first or prior thing. It was singular in its focus. And it wasn't only until 500 years later in the 1900s did we pluralize the term. It used to be singular. There's a priority of parenting, a priority of a vocation, a priority of mission, a priority of finances. But what we've done, going back to the 1900s, we've pluralized the term and we talk about priorities. And he says, and I love this, illogically... We reason that by changing the definition of a word, we could bend reality. There's really only one priority of the church. That is to see people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and to grow up in him. Everything else supports that. These are the last words given to us 
in the Gospel of Matthew. We have seen in the Gospel of Matthew the miraculous birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the, the sacrificial substitutionary death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. And he's going to come back and gather us, those who know him, to himself. And these verses are described as the Great Commission. What does it mean to be great? It's become kind of a hollow word because we use the word great for a lot of things. Now, for full disclosure, I am a University of Kentucky fan. If that has, if that has, if that has instantaneously created enemies, I'm also an Indiana fan, a Wesleyan fan, a Louisville fan. Whatever fan you are, I'm a fan too, so just love me, okay? Um, but I have too many tuition dollars that went to UK, so I am a, a Kentucky fan, and I watched the game yesterday where we beat Kansas, and I did not think that we were going to beat Kansas. It's okay. It's okay. We'll pray for you. And so it was a great game according to me. We talk about great games and great food and great music and great sales, and great speaks to the fact that no other mission is more significant than the mission that we just read. There's no other mission more significant than the one that Jesus gives to us here in Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. I want to share with you three truths this morning. I think they're in your listening guide. The three truths are these. Jesus has all authority. It's really important as we're going to talk about being commissioned to live out this understanding that mission matters. Jesus calls us to make disciples. We see in verse 19, and Jesus will always be with us. He gives us several promises here. He has all authority. He calls every believer in Jesus Christ to make disciples. And he tells us, he gives us a promise that he will always be with us. First, Jesus has all authority. It's important to understand that Jesus is the King, the Savior, and Lord of the universe. We rightly say Jesus is my King. He is my Savior. He is my Lord. And we, we personalize it. And yet we need to understand that Jesus is the King and the Savior of the world. A believer is just someone who's come to that personal realization where they have expressed their faith and their trust and dependence in Jesus. And if you look throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what do the biblical writers do? What does Matthew do? What does Mark do? What does Luke do? What does John do? They record all types of events, all types of parables, but they record some miraculous events. Let me share some with you. We see that the blind see, the lame walk, Lepers are healed, diseases are eradicated, demons are expelled, the wind and the waves obey him. He forgives sin, and finally, what does he do? He lays down his life only to do what? Take it up again. No one can tell Jesus what to do. He has all authority. He has authority over our lives as well. Now, authority gets a bad rap, doesn't it? When we think about authority, we think of probably negative connotations. People who have abused authority, maybe a pastor, maybe a boss, maybe a husband, maybe somebody in the world that you work, but authority is good. And yet we want to live autonomous lives. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. I think it's part and parcel about what it means to be human, but we need to remember that authority is from God and Jesus has all authority and Jesus is not a tyrant. Jesus exercises authority over us. He's not a tyrant. He's kind. He's benevolent. And his rule is compassion-filled. And he is for our good. First, Jesus has all authority. He's the authoritative one. 
He's the, in, he's the preeminent one. He's the incomparable one. No one compares to Jesus. And he's to be first. He's to be primary. Because he's the king, we're commissioned on behalf of him to go tell our neighbors, to go tell the generations, to go tell the nations about him. And there should be in every believer's life, there should be in every believer's life an outward-oriented posture to our lives, to our actions, to our behavior, to our prayers, to our words, to our perspective. And that's why we see in verse 19, secondly, Jesus calls us to make disciples. He calls us to make disciples. The call by Jesus in verse 19 of chapter 28 to make disciples is not just for the spiritual elite because there is no spiritual elite in the church. It's not like Pastor Larry is at the top and we're just trying to clamor to get with him. Certainly, Jesus is our senior pastor and we have a lead pastor, Larry Riley. And it's not like everybody else, there's this hierarchy of Christians. There is no hierarchy in the Christian life. If you're a disciple, you're a believer. If you're a believer, you're a disciple. You're a learner. You're a pupil. You're a follower. And we're all in this together. And the commission that Jesus gives to us is for everybody. And so as a Christian, we're called to make disciples, to be disciple makers. So an appropriate question that you could ask yourself or to ask somebody that you're in relationship with is, who have you reproduced yourself in? Who have you taken time to actually get to know and to point them to Jesus and maybe teach them how to read the Bible and how to talk to God in prayer and how to walk in victory over sin and what it means to be a churchman and a churchwoman and to be committed to a church and how do you live out the spiritual disciplines and how do you walk in victory over sin? All those are things that Jesus is telling us to do, not just for our own heart, but we give to others what God has done in us. We're called to make disciples. You'll see this quote on the screens by N.T. Wright, who's a, a theologian, a pastor, an author of many books. He says, if Christians around the world gave as much energy to it, making disciples, the Great Commission, as they do to learning so many other things that are worthy in themselves, but none so important as this, we, the church, would make more headway, more traction with the gospel in the lives of other people than we normally do. We're called to make disciples. What do we do? We make disciples. It's an imperative that Jesus gives. It's not a suggestion. The, the tense of the language is it's a command. It's an imperative. So if you've got kids or you've got grandkids, uh, right, you'll give a, a directive. You'll give a command and right, parents, grandparents, it's really not up for discussion, right? Like I'm telling you to do this. I don't need you to think about it. I don't need you to pray about it. Like you live in my world. You live in my house. You need to do this. It's a command. Jesus gives us a command to make disciples. Who are we to make disciples of? He tells us to the nations. The word nations is the word ethne, people groups. Did you know that there's 11,545 people groups? And that actually might be a little inaccurate. There's probably more. 11,545 people groups who have a particular culture, a particular language, and 6,000, this is staggering, 6,672 of the nations of the ethne, of the people groups, have less than 2% of the population that are Christians. 6,672 of the people groups, of the ethne, of the nations that Jesus gives us this great commission to go do, have less than 2% of the population 
that knows Jesus, which means the other 3,600 have no gospel witness. They don't have a Graceland Baptist Church. They don't have a pastor, Larry Riley. They don't have ministries. I mean, if you woke up in southern Indiana, you woke up as a blessed, privileged person. Why? Because of all the things that God has done on this campus, because of the churches that are prevalent, because you don't have to figure out where can I go find and purchase a Bible. I mean, we have a lot of privileges, don't we? A tremendous amount of privilege that God has given to us. And we're to take what God has done in our heart to the nations and to tell them about Jesus. Mission matters. Well, how do we do it? We baptize them and teach them to observe all of Jesus' commands. We baptize. We, we show and tell. This past Wednesday night, we, we met in here as a really, really sweet time of worship. If you've got time on Wednesday night, you should come out. It was, a, it was refreshed my soul. And we got to hear of a family that's going back to North Africa, but he got to baptize his son. Now, the baptism didn't, didn't make him a Christian. What he, his son was doing is showcasing, I want everybody to know, I'm not ashamed of being a follower of Jesus. I'm his and he's mine. So baptism, maybe you need to follow the Lord in baptism uh, to show everybody that you are unashamed about your faith in Jesus. And then Jesus tells us we not only baptize him, but we teach him to observe all things. It means that Jesus is concerned about the manner of our life. He's concerned not only what we do 9 o'clock on Sundays or 10.30 or Wednesday night when we gather, but he's concerned about what we do in the privacy of our home. He's concerned by how we use social media. He's concerned by how we interact with neighbors. He's concerned about our rapport with people at work. He wants us to obey and honor him in every facet of our life. This past Saturday, I went to the YMCA. I was going to go swim, and I got there a little early. The Y opens at, at 8 o'clock on Saturday. So if anybody has any influence to get that open early, I'd love to talk with you about that. Um, but I got there early, and I, I was talking with an individual, and he was mildly irritated. I was irritated in my heart. Lord, the Lord knew that. He was irritated outwardly, and the Lord knew that about this individual as well. And so we were let in a little early, and we sat down at some tables, and he began to open up to me. This man was in his late 70s, early 80s, and he talked about a relational fallout that he had had with his son. His son had stolen a lot of his business from his electrical company. And he began to confide and to talk to me about how he was upset and, and angry. And his pastor at his particular church was encouraging him and challenging him that he needs to uh, you know, get rid of his pride and re-engage and practice forgiveness and know that's really difficult, isn't it? And he says, I don't, I don't want to do it. I don't want to listen to my pastor. And he says, well, what do you think? And I just thought, oh, no, he's going to ask me what I think. He says, what do you think? And I said, it sounds like we could grab a cup of coffee. I'd love to talk to you more about that. And he says, well, if you want to change my mind, we don't need to meet. I said, well, all right, I don't have to buy you a cup of coffee, but I'd love to talk to you more about it. My point is, Jesus cares about how that man lives. He cares about how we live. He wants us to observe all that he has committed. It's not just we become a believer in Christ and we stay there. He wants us to grow in our walk with Christ. And so, as I said in the beginning, we never arrive, do we, in the Christian life? Which should be simultaneously encouraging, but also maybe a little discouraging because there's always room for us to grow in our obedience to Jesus. So disciple-making isn't simply what happens in a classroom. It isn't simply what happens in the pew or someone's house, but it's what happens day after day, week after week, month after month, as we let people into our life and as we 
are let into their life and we grow in our understanding of Jesus' work and we appropriate those truths into our life and we learn to grow and learn in terms of our understanding of what it means to talk to God in prayer and we rest in Jesus. I have a hard time resting in Jesus. When I sin, and I sinned like a champ this past week, right? When I sin, Often what I want to do is I want to run to the disciplines. I want to pray. I want to read. I want to memorize scripture. And I do it oftentimes to try to impress God. And God's, boy, I'm so thankful that Nathan's on my team. And I try to earn and merit God's acceptance and favor. I already have the favor and the acceptance because of Jesus. There's nothing that I have to do to get it. And so I have to grow in my understanding of resting in Jesus, observing all that Jesus has commanded us. We tell others about Jesus, and we want to grow that Jesus would be the all-consuming passion and pursuit in our lives. We're entrusted with these things. I love Paul's words in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, I believe, where he says to Timothy, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me, your mentor Paul, entrust or commit to other faithful people who will then be able to teach others also. That word commit, that word entrust that Paul writes that Timothy is to entrust the the gospel, the good news of Christ, the message of Jesus, that word entrust or commit is the same word that's used by Jesus And Luke 23, verse 46, when Jesus says this, as he's hanging on the cross, he says, into your hands, I commit my spirit. I entrust my spirit. Why would Jesus say that? Because he knew that his life was safe in the Father's hands. And so what Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, find faithful individuals who will take the treasure of the gospel the precious message of the gospel and they will embrace it and then they will pass it on to others. Faithful people to other faithful people. We have a responsibility if we're a believer in Jesus to take the gospel to our neighborhoods, to the generations, to our workplaces and to the nations for Christ that they might be changed through him. See, the gospel is never meant to just stay with you, is it? It's never meant to just stay with me. The gospel is always going somewhere. Maybe it's to your neighbor who lives right across the street. Maybe it's to a coworker. Maybe it's to a spouse. Maybe it's to a child. Maybe it's to somebody up in northern Indiana. It doesn't matter. But the gospel is always moving. It is unstoppable. And we get to join with God in the message of the gospel and taking it to people whereby they can become a disciple, follower, learner, of Jesus, which is why our vision, again, is to transform neighborhoods, the generations, and the nations through Jesus Christ. It's God's plan A. There's no plan B, folks. There's no plan C. It's you and me. Paul makes this case in Ephesians chapter 2 that the manifold wisdom of God, the gospel, It's a shorthanded way of saying the gospel. The manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities through who? Through the church. That we declare the excellencies, the goodness, 
the message of Jesus. Jesus has all authority. He calls us to make disciples, to reproduce ourselves and other people because mission matters. And then thirdly and lastly, I love this truth. It's so encouraging, encouraging to my soul. He says, Jesus will always be with us. He'll always be with us. Now, in a room this size, with this many people who have frequented Graceland Baptist Church this morning, undoubtedly there are people who have had a spouse that has left them. A child who grew up in your home and said, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. I'm out of here. A pastor who you trusted and loved but fell into sin and left the ministry. A friend that you were close to at one point but won't talk to you anymore. And here's what I want you to know. Jesus isn't like any of them. He will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He'll never abandon you. Those dark nights of the soul where you want to despair and sometimes we do despair. The difficulty of a relationship Maybe you've mustered up courage. You've been listening to Pastor Larry propound this vision statement and you've mustered up the courage to walk across the street and you're like, oh no, Larry wants me to make Jesus through in the neighborhoods. I guess I'll go talk to my neighbor. And you get over there, you knock on the door and you're about to pass out from anxiety. You know who's with you? Jesus. He's always, always, always with us. And the very beginning of Matthew talks about Jesus is Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And what does Jesus do at the very end of Matthew? He says, what? I'm always going to be with you. You got the bookends of the Christian life, the miraculous birth of Christ. God is with us. He's here. He's arrived. And I've commissioned you. I'm leaving. I'm going to come back. But I want you to know, I've not left you. I've not left you. I'm always, always with you. Why do we want to be a church that more and more, more and more faithfully, believes that mission matters because we want to be about what God is about. And God loves people. God loves people. Jesus looked at Jerusalem and you remember what he said in the gospels? He longed to gather them as a hen would gather its chicks. You're like, what does that mean? It means he wants to gather. He, and the Bible says he had compassion. And compassion is this, this, this emotion that affects us internally and it moves us to action. If we say we're compassionate, but there is no action, do you know what we're not? We're not compassionate because compassion is an outward-oriented, an action-oriented emotion. And we want to care about the things that God cares about. Carl Henry, he passed away some time ago. He was a tremendous theologian and author. He says, the gospel is only good news. And I know it's always good news, but here's what he says. The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. It's appointed for every man, woman, boy, and girl to die and then to face judgment, the writer of Hebrews says, and it's a scary thing to fall into the hands of living God and not know him, not be forgiven, not have your sins atoned for by expressing our faith in Christ. You see, mission matters, but I want you to also understand, Jesus doesn't need intellectuals. He doesn't need celebrities. He doesn't need our creativity. He doesn't need our ingenuity, our wisdom. He doesn't need our knowledge. Here's what he wants. He wants our lives surrendered to him 
where we're set apart and empowered by the Spirit of God with the authority and the presence of Jesus and the power of the gospel to go to our neighborhoods, to go to the generations, to go to the nations, to tell them that they can be changed through who? Jesus. That's why mission matters. Jesus gave us this great commission, and we will follow our king wherever he might take us.